0: I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me, because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me, and he who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love him and will disclose Myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love Me does not keep My words, And the word which you heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray together before we begin. Our great God, we thank you for your word. It is so clear to us. There are some things that need a great amount of study and understanding and and assistance in understanding. And this text is not one of them. Not difficult to understand at all, but difficult to apply and to, uh, to make ourselves to yield to your word sometimes. And so we just pray that through all of our consideration, our study here this morning, that this might be even more clear to us than it is here in the pages of Scripture, that you would help us to apply these words and to give hearts of obedience and love and praise to you. We pray that through the obedience of your people that your name might be made great and that you might be glorified. So help us, we pray, Spirit of God, to understand your word here and then also to apply it and to live it out and to obey what Christ has commanded of those who call on his name and name his name and are, and are loved by him. We pray your blessing on this time to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are back in John chapter 14, it's been a couple of weeks, and so uh, just by way of review, I'll just remind you of what the context is and quickly set it up so that we can sort of refocus our attention on this. I find that after a couple of weeks off and not being in a passage, sometimes it takes me a bit of mental effort to go through and remind myself of what the flow of the passage has been and, and what we've been looking at, and since... I spend hours a day doing that. I know it's probably going to be even more difficult for you. So here's a little bit of an of a introduction or at least a reminder of where we've been at. Uh, John 14 and 16, remember, is the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' final teaching with the 11 disciples. Judas is absent. Uh, his final teaching with those 11 remaining disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And he has reminded them over and over and over again that he is going to leave them. He is departing. But He's not going to leave them alone. He's not going to leave them as orphans. That's where our passage picked up that we just read. Instead, He is going to send the Helper, another Helper, a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Truth, also known as the Spirit of Christ. And that Holy Spirit would be with His people and in His people. And that would be the new defining reality, something that Old Testament saints did not enjoy. And so we have spent some time looking, looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and understanding the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit the, the experience of the Christian, of the person of the Holy Spirit, is our understanding and teaching on the subject of the Trinity. We know the doctrine of the Trinity by experience. We understand who the Father is, we pray to the Father, we see Christ stepping into human history in the incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension, and yet we also know the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our understanding of the Trinity is an experiential understanding. We know that God is a triune God because the third person of the Trinity dwells within the heart and life of the believer. So now, since all of these blessings accrue to the believer, to the Christian, and not to the world, because Jesus says the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit, the world cannot know the Holy Spirit, the world is unable to appreciate these things or to enjoy these blessings because the world is lost, the world does not belong to Christ, then that might raise for us the question, who then is a Christian? How do we know who the Christians are? What is the the mark of a genuine believer? Who are these ones who receive all of these blessings, the blessing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of His presence and His power? Who are these ones that, and what marks those who are true believers and enjoy all of the blessings described in this passage? And that brings us to our passage that we're reading today, verses 21 through 24. That's what we're going to be focusing on. We've already looked at everything up to verse 20, so we're picking it up in verse 21. And before we kind of dive into going through this verse by verse, phrase by phrase, as, as we like to do, uh, I want to give you a couple of notes just about the entire context. And this is new stuff, not not review. Um, first, you will remember that we skipped verse 15. And I told you when we skipped verse 15 that we were skipping verse 15, not pretending that it didn't exist, but that we were setting it aside until we got to a passage that kind of explains it in greater detail. And that's this passage, beginning in verse 21 we have basically verse 15 repeated. Remember verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now that that sentence is kind of stuck in there where it, it seems out of place. And when we went through verse 15, I gave you sort of why it's connected to its context and how it sort of sits there. Uh, this is the obligations of discipleship, obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the obligation to disciples, that we are obligated to obey the Master. And then we need, in order to obey as we're supposed to obey, we need the power and the indwelling and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that's how it's kind of connected to its context. But we set it aside just briefly so that we could pick it up again. And So we're sort of treating verse 15 with verse 21. And I just mentioned that so that you remember, verse 15 is there, verse 21 is now repeating that verse. A second note is has to do with the parallelism and the structure of the passage. If you read verse 21 and then you read verse 23, you will notice that there are three things that are paralleled. In verse 21, Jesus said, He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. Now look down at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and the Father will love him. So there's that first parallel is, If anyone loves Me, he will obey Me or keep My commandments. The second thing that is paralleled in both of those verses is the love of the Father and the Son for the one who loves the Son and obeys the Son. Look again at verse 21. Uh, he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And then look at verse 23, and my father will love him. And then the third thing that is paralleled is this idea of Christ disclosing or revealing himself to the believer. Verse 21, and I and will disclose myself to him. And verse 23 ends with, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So you'll see that verse 23 repeats verse 21, which repeats verse 15. And in in each of these instances, more detail is added and more explanation is given. But I just want you to notice the parallelism that exists there. There's a question in verse 22, but noticing those parallels is important because, as you'll see later on, it helps us to answer a key interpretive issue, which is, what does it mean when Jesus said that he will disclose himself to the one who obeys him? So we'll get into that in just a minute. Now let's work our way through the passage, beginning in verse 21. Read it with me again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, that is pretty straightforward. Unlike some of the other phrases and and teachings in this discourse, that is not veiled in a lot of mystery. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and obey him. That's really simple and straightforward. Not a lot of lack of clarity there. In fact, I really don't even need to explain it. And so then you might ask yourself, well, Jim, why then are you going to explain it? Why don't we just skip down to verse 25 and move on? And that's because I have a, a unique ability to spend 40 minutes explaining what really doesn't need to be explained. And that's my spiritual gift, and it's your cross to bear. And so we're going to go through all of verses 21 through 24. There is quite a bit to unpack here, even though that is simple and straightforward. There's a lot there that deserves our meditation. So what does Jesus mean when he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me? What does it mean to have his commandments and keep them? We recognize that it is possible to have his commandments and not keep them, right? What would Jesus mean by he who has my commandments? Who would that describe? That would describe the person who has received his commandments intellectually, who knows the truth, has seen the truth, understands the truth, understands what the demands of discipleship is. These are 11 men who have, have learned, listened to Jesus say, it is the one who takes up his cross and follows after me. The one who perseveres to the end. He who loves mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. You must count the cost to be a disciple. This might cost you your life. That That's the truth. That's the understanding of what the gospel is. These men had heard Jesus say that. They understood what the demands were. That we are willing to die, that we die to ourself, that we are are willing to be crucified, that we are willing to follow Him all the way to death. That's the demands of discipleship. Belief is not an easy thing. It's not just, I pray a prayer, I check a box, and, and now I'm in. But the demands of discipleship are very steep. Well, if that's the command, the command of Jesus, then the one who has that is one who has intellectually listened to it but not one who actually does it. There is obviously a big difference between those who have his commands and those who have his commands and keep his commands. In fact, these 11 disciples would be uh, would be very familiar with an example of just the type of person that we are talking about, and who would it be? Judas. Judas was one who had sat and listened to all of the same teaching that Peter and John had listened to. Judas had heard all of the same demands and all of the same commands that Peter, James, and John had heard. But Judas was not one who kept his word. Judas was not one who obeyed his word. Judas was not one who was even interested in obedience. And he's gone. So who is the one who has his commandments and keeps his commandments? It's the person who hears the truth and then does the truth, not the person who merely hears the truth and walks away unchanged by it. And Judas is an example of the type of person who has commandments but does not keep them. And this, by necessity, distinguishes the difference between, that, that makes a distinction between a true disciple and a false disciple. You remember, all the way through the Gospel of John, we've seen this. That John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to, that believing we might have life in His name. But John does not want us to be confused as to the nature of true and genuine saving belief. And so, all the way through His Gospel, He has drawn these lines of distinction between the true disciple and the false disciple. Unlike the false disciple in John chapter 2, who seeks after Him for signs, The true disciple, John chapter 3, is one who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God and has been given new life. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus made that distinction between those who seek Him only to meet some physical need. Feed us another meal. Provide for us more bread and fish. We're hungry. And those who come to Him because He is the bread of life and can provide what they really need, which is eternal life. In John chapter 8, there is that distinction between those who merely know the truth because they have believed, and those who abide in His Word and continue in His Word, and those are disciples indeed. Those are the free ones. In John chapter 10, there is that distinction between those who hear the voice of the shepherd and come to Him, receive eternal life, and are kept in Him. And then there are those who do not hear Him, do not hear His voice, and do not come to Him. The Pharisees, who are not His sheep. All the way through the Gospel of John, John has been interested in showing to us the difference between true disciples and false disciples. Real belief and the make-belief or fake belief, the make-believer. And that distinction is drawn here in this text. It is the one who he has my commandments and keeps my commandments. That is the one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the central teaching of the passage, that if we love Him, we will obey Him. The mark of a genuine Christian is one who loves Christ and gives their heart in obeying Him and does what He's commanded. Not just that we call Him Lord, Lord, but that we do what He says. That is the demand of obedience. To love Him and to keep His commandments. Not just to have His commandments, but to keep His commandments as well. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command you. How do we know if we are His friends? we obey Him. The one who does not obey Him is not a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, but an enemy. In 1 John chapter 2, John says this in verse 4, The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Right? The one who says, I abide in him and I have come to know him is the one who walks as he has walked. And if one does not walk as Jesus walked, he does not truly know the Father, and he does not truly know the Son. And the only one he is deceiving is himself. Because the Father knows the truth. And the Son knows the truth. And the Spirit of God knows the truth. He may deceive himself and he may deceive others. But it is the one who has his word and keeps his word. That is the one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the mark of a true believer. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that those who walk according to the prince of the power of the air, is, those ones who walk in disobedience are characterized and called the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is a phrase that means sons or men characterized by disobedience. What is it that, what is it that characterizes the life of an unbeliever? Disobedience to God's commands and to God's word. That is, the, that is the mark of an unbeliever. They are sons, men, characterized by disobedience. Well, if salvation is being plucked out of darkness and put into light and transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's dear son, and it involves a new nature and a new heart and new affections and the indwelling of the Spirit of God who produces in us a love for Jesus Christ, if that's what salvation has done, then those who are have experienced all of those realities can no longer be characterized as sons of disobedience. We would be characterized as what? Sons of obedience. Who is the genuine believer but the one who obeys the Son? Now you might say, Jim, but hold on a second. I prayed the prayer. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I walked an aisle. I came forward. I asked Jesus into my heart. Well, listen, that is likewise a mark of genuine, true profession. You'll see that down in verse 20. Look at it. Verse 20. Nope, it's not there. Sorry, the one who prays the prayer and checks the box. I had to fool for a second. did didn't I? He thought, "Whoa, asking Jesus into my heart. This is the verse where I find that. No, it's not there. You know what else isn't there? A hyper-emotional experience. See, it doesn't matter how emotionally enraptured you are in a worship service. Or that you go to a conference and you get all excited over truth. You can have deep and profound emotional experiences. And deep and profound emotions. And even weeping and tears flowing out of your eyes. And feel lifted up in worship. And walk away from an experience like that and step right back into a disobedient lifestyle. Because those things are not the things that are characteristic of genuine salvation emotions might be there but how do I know if I'm saved I've had an emotional experience I've cried a lot of tears I felt warm fuzzy feelings about the truth it doesn't matter what one thinks about the truth or what one feels about the truth what matters is what one does with the truth what is the mark of a genuine believer it is the one who obeys who has his word and keeps his commandments that is the mark of genuine salvation that is the mark of a true believer J.C. Ryle has a helpful word about emotions in his commentary on the Gospel of John, and he writes this, "...good feelings and desires are useless if they are not accompanied by action. They may even become mischievous to the soul, induce hardness of conscience, and do positive harm. Passive impressions which do not lead to action gradually deaden and paralyze the heart. Living and doing are the only real evidence of grace." Quote. Now notice that J.C. Ryle does not say that emotions are useless, period. Emotions are fine if emotions are in their right place. But emotions detached from obedience are useless. How many people have you met who can get very emotional over the truth, but on Monday morning or Sunday afternoon, their walk is a complete train wreck because they don't understand what obedience to the commands of Christ is. They hear the commands, they have the commands, but they don't obey them. It is the one who has his commandments and obeys His commandments. That one is the true child of God. Let me offer a couple of caveats to this. First of all, what Jesus is not saying, He is not saying that our love for Christ brings us salvation. He is not saying the one who loves me merits my grace, and that is the one whom I save. Is fallen man or unbelieving man, are we able in our flesh, in our fallenness to love Christ in any way which might merit salvation? No, fallen man is completely devoid of that love of God, which is the fundamental requirement of the law. To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody can do that. No fallen man has the ability to do that. That command and requirement is there, but all men fall short of that. All men and women fall short of that standard. We don't have the ability to love God in any way which might merit or earn His salvation. So Jesus is not talking about a salvation by love. Salvation is still by grace, through faith in Christ, But what he is describing here is the fruit of genuine salvation. Salvation brings a changed heart. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, in the life of the brand new Christian, that one will inevitably, he must love the Lord Jesus Christ. That love for the Lord Jesus Christ will issue in obedience all of the time. The one who is marked and characterized by disobedience does not have that fundamental requirement of the law, that love for God and that love for Jesus Christ. So, he's not describing salvation by love. Second, let's make sure that we're not confusing love with an emotional feeling. Because I mentioned just a few moments ago that, that we're not talking about an emotion that one has or a strong feeling toward or about the truth. There's a difference between love and emotion. I hope you understand this distinction. If you don't understand the distinction between love and a feeling then your obedience will be a train wreck, and here's why. Because you will not always feel loving. You will not always feel the emotion. So what will your obedience look like when the feeling of love is not there? When you are suffering through cancer, and you've just got out of chemotherapy, and you have lost all your hair, and you are looking at death's door down the corridor of the, of the hospital, will you feel loving at that moment? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not, but circumstances can change and our feelings can change and our feelings fluctuate with the circumstances. But when I understand that love is an affection directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the product of the Spirit of God in my life, creating that affection for Him, I may not feel enraptured at every moment, but I can still, in the midst of not feeling loving or not feeling an emotion of love, I can still offer to Him obedience, which is the fruit of that love. If you confuse feeling with love, then when the feeling is gone, because the circumstances have affected that, what's going to happen to your obedience? It will be gone as well. Do you understand that I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I may not always feel the same at every given moment of every given day? I have to change a diaper. I get up in the middle of the night. I got to do this. I have to do that. I have to have this done for work. Sometimes the circumstances of life affect our feelings, but they never affect our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor do they ever affect our willingness to obey Him because what He commands us to do is something that we are required to do. And the motivation for all of this is the gospel, and we can't leave that out. We can't get past the point where we realize that I I have an affection for Him or a love for Him because I look upon the reality, the truth of who I am, who I was before I came to Christ, and what He has done for me on the cross. And I meditate and I think about that and I, 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 I meditate upon that reality, that I have been saved entirely by grace, and looking at my relationship in Christ and what Christ has done for me in terms of the entire gospel message, suddenly that does have an effect upon my heart. Sometimes that will make me feel love and a love for Christ. Sometimes it won't. But still, my motivation to love Him is because He is worthy of it and He demands it and He deserves it and He has said that this is the indication of the one who truly loves Him. It is the one who has His commandments and keeps His commandments. Now, is this always going to be easy? Does this mean that obeying Christ is always easy? No, it's not always easy, is it? Does it mean that obeying Christ is always a joy? It's not always a joy. If I said that acting and being obedient to Christ was was always made me happy, sometimes it won't make you happy, but it will make you holy. And God's more interested in your holiness than He is your happiness. It might not be a joy. It might might be a drudgery. It might be duty at times, but it is still my duty. It is better to do your duty without joy and do it because it is your duty than to not do it at all. Obviously, ultimately, I want to obey Him because my heart cries out that I long to obey Him and I want to honor Him in that. But when I don't feel like doing it, I still must do it. And sometimes obedience won't make me happy. At least not in the short term. But it's guaranteed to make me happy in the long term. Because God's not interested in my happiness. He's interested in my holiness. So what does this mean for us? This means... Of course, I just spent the last 20 minutes explaining to you what didn't need to be explained. This means that the genuine mark of a believer is one who has His Word and keeps His Word. Not one who merely has His Word. Now, there are blessings and promises to the one who loves Him and obeys Him. And there are three of them mentioned here in this verse. Look again at verse 21. He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. And he who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. Those are three, three promises. To be loved by the Father, to be loved by the Son, and then to have the Son disclose or reveal himself to the one who loves and obeys the Son. We'll get to what it means to have him reveal himself to us in just a second, but let's deal with each of those. The first promise is that you and I will be loved by the Father. Now again, Jesus is not saying that our love for Christ merits or earns the Father's love. Uh, the Father's love upon His people is not something that takes place in time because of something we do in time. In fact, it is something that predates even creation itself. The promise in the Scriptures is that the Father loved us before the foundation of the world and set His affection on it. He foreknew us. That's what the word foreknow means. doesn't mean that God is a good prognosticator and can look down through history and sees what we are going to do. It means that ahead of time, beforehand, He set His affection on us and He loved us before the foundation of the world and gave His sheep to His Son as a love gift from the Father to the Son so that all whom the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son and receive eternal life. So, we're not talking in terms of chronology that we love God before He loved us. In fact, John says in First John 4.19 the exact opposite. For this reason we love because He first loved us. So His love precedes ours in terms of time. You can think of it this way. He he loved us. His love drove Him or motivated Him to save us. He saved us and creates in us the fruit of that which is obedience. And in offering to Him obedience, He loves us. He loves those who are obedient to the Son. So His love stands at the beginning. His love stands at the end. It is the first. It is the last. It is the cause. It is the conclusion of all salvation. Because of His love, we are saved. Because of our salvation, we obey. Because of our obedience, He loves us. But His love begins it, and His love ends it, and His love is over top of all of that. But this is the precious promise, that those who obey the Son are loved by the Father. Now, we can't even read this verse without coming to the conclusion that the love that He is describing here is a distinct and distinguishing love. There's a great myth in Christianity That God loves all men equally, and He makes no distinctions in His love between any individuals. That is a great myth. It is a myth that besmirches the character of God and actually distorts the whole idea of love. And it doesn't even fit with this passage. Let me ask you this. If you believe that God loves all men equally, the same, that there is no distinction between how God loves any individual person, then what does this passage mean? It is the one who obeys the Son whom the Father loves. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you really think that Jesus is saying, the one who leaves all, sacrifices all, follows me, loves me, and obeys me, that is the one who will be loved by the Father in the same way, to the same degree, without distinction, as the one who hates me, and is hostile to God, and blasphemes God, and hates God with every fiber of His being. The Father will love you the same as He loves the Pharisees. Do you really think that there is no distinction whatsoever in the love of the Father for these eleven men and the love of the Father for Judas? There must be. If there is no distinction between in the love of God between the one who obeys Christ and the one who disobeys Him, then this verse doesn't mean anything. What type of an incentive, what type of motivation to obedience is this? If I sacrifice everything, the Father will love me the same way He loves everybody else, without distinction. Are we really to believe that the love of the Father for these eleven men was in no way distinguished or in no way different at all than the love of the Father for the Pharisees who at this very moment were plotting the death of His Son. Are there distinctions in the love of God? There are. There have to be. You and I recognize this and we live this way all the time. All the time we do this. You recognize that your love for your spouse is different than your love for everybody else that is here. Your love for your kids is different than your love for everybody else's kids. We make distinctions and, 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 and uh, differentiation in our love all the time. That is a high form of love. It is right and appropriate. It is just like God to do so. The type of does God have a love for those who are not His, for those who disobey Him and hate Him? I believe God does have a love for them, but it's not the same as the love that He reserves for those who obey and love the Son. It's a different kind of love. Otherwise, the passage doesn't mean anything. Of course, God loves those whom who, who do not hate Him, but it's not the same. Or sorry, of course, God loves those. Who hate him and reject him, but it is not the same kind of love that is described here in this passage. This is a special love of the Father set upon those who love the son and obey the Son. That is the precious promise of God. The love of the of love of God for all men generally uh sorry, I should say this the, I should say it this way. the love of God described in this passage is not a peanut butter type love that is spread out over all people equally without any distinctions or differentiation. It can't be the one who loves the son and obeys the Son, has this special promise that He has a distinguishing and different and unique and inexpressible love that rests upon Him from the Father that is not the not enjoyed by everybody else in the world. It's not. He will not only be loved by the Father, but He will be loved by the Son as well. Look at the next phrase. Verse 21. He who keeps them is the one who loves Me, and he who loves Me will be loved by My Father and I will love him. That's the second promise. Now again, this is not Jesus loves us because we love him. This is not dealing with issues of chronology or timing. We love because he first loved us. It comes before our love for him. And we are able to love him only because he first loved us. He set his affection on us. Remember that transaction we talked about back in John chapter six, where the father gave to the son of people and the son agreed to save those people and to keep those people for the glory of the triune God. Do you remember that back in John chapter six? The Son loved us before He ever came into this world, before you and I were ever born. His love for us predates creation even. So that's not what's being described here. But What is being described here is this promise that the one who loves the Son and obeys the Son has this confidence that the Son loves Him in a way unique from and different from the way the Son loves everybody else. Do you think that the Lord Jesus loved Judas? Of course He did. I do believe that He did. Do you think that the Lord Jesus desired the destruction of Judas in the same way that He desired the salvation of the eleven disciples. No, He did not. Doesn't He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the love with which the Lord Jesus loved these eleven men was not a love that is enjoyed by those who disobey Him and hate Him. This is a special, distinguishing, and inexpressible love that distinguishes between those who are His and those who are of the world. Jesus made that distinction. You belong to me. Some do not belong to me. He said to the Pharisees, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. They did not belong to him. Was the love of Jesus for the Pharisee, for Caiaphas, the Caiaphas, do you think it was the same as the love of Jesus Christ for Peter and John? It was not. Did he love them? Yeah, he did. But there's distinctions and differentiation in the love. Do you think that the love of God for Jacob and Esau was identical? Was it identical? It wasn't does it mean that God hated hated Esau in the same way that He loved Jacob. It means that the love that God had for Esau or Jacob is different than the love that He had for Esau. Do you think that God loved Abraham the very same way that He loved the Amorite high priest who while, uh, while God was making a covenant with Abraham that Amorite high priest was offering children and sacrifices to Moloch? Do you think the love of them is identical? It's not. Do you think the love of God for David is the same as the love of God for King Saul? It wasn't. It was a different love. And so this is the promise of this passage that those who love the Son and obey Him We have resting upon those saved ones, those ones who have been saved by that grace and have that love in them and obey the Son. We have a a love resting upon us from the Father and from the Son that is different and unique than the love that God has for all mankind. It is a special, distinguishing, and inexpressible love. Now the third promise, he will disclose himself to him. What does it mean, disclose himself to him? This is a unique word. It's only used two times in all of the New Testament once right here in this verse and once in the next verse where Judas asked the question what do you mean disclose it's not the normal word used for reveal or or uh, appear or uh, manifest it's kind of a unique word that sort of has the idea of of presenting someone to some uh, presenting something to someone uh whatever the nuances were in John's mind when he chose this word instead of the more common word we're not privy to that right here. But we can say this, that this is the promise that those who love the son and obey the son, the son reveals himself to them in a way that he does not reveal himself to the world. In fact, that's how Judas understood it. When he asked the question, what has happened that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Judas understood that Jesus was making a distinction that his love for and the Father's love for those whom love and obey the Son and his revealing of himself to those people is different than the love for the Father and the love of the Son and the revealing of the Son to the world. There's a distinction being made. So those who are in Christ who, who will love him and obey him, we have the promise that the Son will reveal himself to him. Now this is where the parallelism that I mentioned at the beginning kind of comes into play and helps us answer this question. Paralleled in verse 21 and verse 23 are those three thoughts. The one who loves the Son will obey Him. That one will be loved by the Father and the Son. That's number two. And third, verse 21, He will disclose Himself to them. But in verse 23, the paralleled thought is, we, the Father and the Son, will come to Him and make our abode with Him. Now, if the first two thoughts are paralleled in verses 21 and 23, I think that the explanation of what he means by disclose is in verse 23 in that third parallel thought. Namely, that the Son discloses himself to his people when the Father and the Son come to the believer and make their abode with him. What does that describe? Judging from the context and everything we've described about the working of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that he will be in us, that he will be with us, that he will be with us forever, I think Jesus is describing the same thing he has been discussing in the entire context, and that is namely the indwelling of the Spirit of God. How does the Father and the Son come to the believer and make their abode with Him? When the Spirit of God comes into the life and heart of a believer, the Father and the Son dwell there, not because they're the same person, but because they are the same God. So we experience the indwelling, the living in, of the Spirit of Christ, and through the Spirit of Christ we see revealed to us and revealed in us the Father and the Son. That's the promise. The one who loves me and obeys me has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives special manifestations, special enjoyments and privileges, and experiences, if you will. I use that word very tentatively. But experiences whereby the Son and the Father are revealed to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? That's the disclosing that's being discussed there. By the way, there's an interesting juxtaposition in chapter 14 that I never... I never caught this until I was reading recently a book by Sinclair Ferguson on the Holy Spirit. And it's it's appropriately titled The Holy Spirit. It's not the most creative title, but at least you know what you're getting into when you pick it up to read it. The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. And and he notes, he points something out in John chapter 14. He says, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus promises that he will go to the Father's place to prepare a dwelling for us. And then he says that he is going to send the Spirit from heaven to here to prepare a dwelling for the Father and the Son. Interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? The Son leave, left earth to go to heaven to prepare us an abode, a dwelling place, in the presence of the Father, so that we might live with Him. And then He sent the Spirit down here to prepare in us a place by which the Father and the Son might live in us. It's an interesting juxtaposition. So, that's what the disclosing is. Now let's take a look at verse, uh, where we at. Judas's question, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now John notes that this is Judas, but not Iscariot. And why does John tell us that? He already told us back in chapter 13 that Judas Iscariot left the company of the twelve and he went out. I think John mentions this so that we don't assume that at some point during this long conversation that Judas kind of snuck back into the room and is now asking questions of Jesus. It indicates to us that there is another disciple among the twelve who was called Judas. Judas was not an uncommon name at the time. It was actually a common name. It was actually an honor in this day to be named Judas. And you know why? Because it was named after two very distinct people. First, Judah, the son of Jacob, who was head of one of the tribes. And then Judas Maccabeus, who led the Maccabean revolt in the intertestamental between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that time period we talked about a couple chapters ago. He led a revolt that sort of uh, drove out the foreign occupation and the foreign power. So to name somebody Judas was an honor. It's not an honor today, is it? No, because Judas Iscariot gave a bad name to that name, Judas, so nobody wants to name their kids Judas anymore. But this is a Judas who is not Iscariot. This is a disciple that actually had three names. According to Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, he was called Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. So he was known by two nicknames, Labaius and Thaddeus, and Judas was probably his given name. J.C. Ryle wrongly says that this Judas is the author of the book of Jude. This is a different Judas. The author of the book of Jude was not an apostle. He was not here this night. He was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus. This Judas is the son of James, uh, an, an apostle, not Jude, the author of the book of Jude. So he asked the question, and it seems a little odd to our ears when we read it, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now Judas understood Jesus was making a distinction between the world and those who were his. He got that much. But what he didn't understand was, How is it that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Kind of an odd question until you understand the presuppositions behind the question. What is it that the Jews expected the Messiah to do when he came? Set up a kingdom. That's what they were expecting. What did the disciples, even at this late stage in the game, what did they expect Jesus to do? Set up a kingdom. They thought everything was still on the timetable. He was going to set up the kingdom. So here's the question. How is it that you are going to fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets? If you are the rightful heir of the entire world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of David, the Son of man who will set up this throne, how are you going to crush all Gentile power and establish this worldwide kingdom and rule over the nations without the world noticing? How do you do that without the world noticing? How is it that you are going to disclose yourself to us, and by disclose... He meant reveal your glory and establish the kingdom. How are you going to do that without the world noticing that you're going to do it? A little hard to rule the nations if the nations don't understand or know that you are ruling them. And so the answer to the question is in verse 23. He restates the truth that He said in verse 15. He repeated in verse 21. He restates it again, but this time He explains what He means by disclosing. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves Me, he will keep my word. Jesus kind of got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, and Jesus brings him right back to center. If anyone loves me and keeps my word, he will keep my if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's the disclosing. The disclosing is not establishing the kingdom, it's setting up the worldwide kingdom without the world noticing. The disclosing is we will come, the Father and the Son. We, because we love that person, we will come to him and we will abide with him. We will live with him. How does the Father and the Son live with the believer? He discloses Himself to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24 states the exact same thing again, but from the negative. Stating it negative. He who does not love Me does not keep My words, and the word which you heard is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. Here's the negative side of that. The One who does not keep My word does not love Me. The One who does not love Me does not keep My word. The One who does love Me does keep my word what is the mark of genuine salvation it's obedience it's what it is it's obedience does that mean that a christian will never fail does it mean that a christian will never sin it doesn't mean that but it does mean that the mark of a genuine believer is that he is on a progression out of sin not a progression in sin the genuine believer does not get up and plan his sin and plot his sin and rejoice in his sin and enjoy his sin and think about his sin and excuse his sin That's not the mark of a genuine believer. A genuine believer is one who is progressing out of sin. He hates sin. He wants to be free from sin. He despises sin. And all he wants to do is obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And the the heart of a genuine believer is this. He wants to be able to obey the Lord Jesus Christ without any inclination to do otherwise. That's what I look forward to in eternity. I want to be able to stand in his presence and offer to him obedience without any inclination to do otherwise. No desire in my heart to do anything but Obey Him. So that there may never be a thought of disobedience, never a wrestling over obedience, never a weighing out the costs and consequences of obedience, just a heart of obedience rendered to the Lord without any inclination to do anything but obey Him. That is the heart of a genuine and true believer. And Jesus adds some some gravity to the command, some significance to it when He says at the end of verse 24, The word which you hear is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. No higher authority could be cited than this that Jesus' words are the words of the Father himself. You see, we might mistakenly think that uh, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was trying to compete for the love and affection and obedience of God's people with the Father. And Jesus is saying, that that's not what I'm doing. Uh, My words, the commandments that I give to you, they're not my own. I don't make these up. I'm not coming to draw away worshipers away from the Father for myself the words that he gives are the words of the father the commands that he gives are the commands of the father that's why jesus could say to see me is to see the father to hear him is to hear the father to hear his commands is to hear the commands of the father to offer to him obedience is to offer obedience to the father as well not because they are the same person again but because they are the same god so to render heartfelt obedience to the commands of jesus is not, does in no way uh does does no way disparage the god the father whatsoever do you understand how arrogant and conceited and megalomaniacal it would be for a mere man to say this. I have given you commands and you must obey me. It would be arrogant and megalomaniacal for anybody to say that unless the person who said that was God in human flesh. But he can say that. He can say that what I'm given to you, I tell you to obey me, but I'm not telling you to obey me instead of the Father. You obey me, you obey the Father. And that is why the Father loves the Son and he loves those who... Love the Son, and He loves those who obey the Son, and we obey the Son because we love the Son. So what does this mean for us? We spent 40 minutes. I've explained to you some that didn't need to be explained. So what do we do with this? We walk away from here. Let me give you a couple of things. First, I think that you and I need to purpose in our hearts, if you haven't already, resolve that you will obey Him. That's, that's a good New Year's resolution. I will obey the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my heart's desire. That is what I will do. I make that decision now at the outset that I will obey Him, I will do what He commands me to do. But then second, I understand that my resolution, my resolve, is not sufficient. I must at the same time pray for the grace to do that, understanding that though I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who is at work in us, to both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So I resolve that I will obey the Lord Jesus Christ as an expression of my love for Him, but then I have to turn around and say, Lord, give me the grace to do what You command me to do. Command whatever You will, but give me strength to do what You command and give me the grace to do what it is that you've commanded me to do, and what I have resolved to do. And then we purpose that in loving Him and obeying Him, whether we feel like it or not, we do it to the glory of His name, and because we are giving to Him the honor that He is due, and because we love Him because of what He has done for us in the gospel. We resolve to obey Him, because that's how we express our love to Him. In doing so, we pray that the Holy Spirit might work in us to do what He has called us to do and demanded of us, and that in doing that, in obeying Him, we are giving to Him the honor that He has so rightly due. And that's all gospel-centered and gospel-motivated. You do it because we love Him. And we love Him because of what He has done. And we love Him because He first loved us. Bow our heads. Our gracious God, we thank You for these strong reminders from Your Word. We are unworthy of any of the grace of salvation which You have bestowed upon us, which You have so lovingly given to those who are Yours. We thank You for that salvation, and we thank You that You have... You have created in the hearts of your people a desire to love you. We know that there might be some here this morning who who do not express their love for you. They do not express uh, any love for you because they do not have that true love of you which is the fundamental requirement of the law. They do not have it because it is, they've never come to know you and they have not indwelt by the Spirit of God who sheds His love abroad in our hearts and gives us that love for Christ. So we pray that by your grace that you might draw sinners to yourself, open their eyes to see their need for salvation and may... Their lack of obedience to Christ be an indication to them that they do not know Him, even though they may profess to know Him. They do not truly know Him and are not truly saved. May all who are here today not be found wanting in any way when it comes to standing before Your throne. May we all have true faith. May You grant that faith to us and be glorified in saving sinners and drawing them to Yourself. And for the rest of us, Father, who do know You, and we pray that You would give to us the grace to obey You and to love You and serve You as we should. We know that we fail in so many ways. We are not perfect, but we know that our desire, we confess to you, our desire is to obey you in the way that you have commanded and to show our love for Christ by giving heartfelt obedience to him. So give us the grace, we pray, to do that, to mortify sin, to put it to death, and to serve you and love you as we should. We thank you that you are the cause of all these things, our salvation, our sanctification, and the security that we enjoy in your Son. We thank you for that in his name. Amen.